Hello, I'm Roland Moore, and you're listening to The Sirens of Audio. Hello, me one. Hello, me two. So how's 2021 been looking so far, me one? Like this, me too. No, no, no. You can't do non-verbal gags. We may be dropping content on YouTube, but most of our audience is still listening to the audio version of the show. Plus, don't forget, we're all about the audio medium here on the Sirens of Audio Me One. I see Me Too. Shouldn't you say, I hear Me One? I'm shaking my head, Me Too. So, I'm pretty excited about today's guest, Me One. Me Too, Me Too. Although with a guest called Nev Fountain, perhaps we should have tried to broadcast this interview via live stream are we really punning on someone else's last name with a last name like ours me too maybe we should call this episode two goons and a fountain me one perhaps we should just leave the comedy to the professionals me too G'day audiophiles, you're listening to The Sirens of Audio, the podcast devoted to Doctor Who and the audio medium. My name is Dwayne, I'm your host, and uh, with me, as always, is Philip. Hey, Dwayne, how are you going? <laughs> you didn't think I was going to introduce I you. I thought you were going to leave my name out and make me say it myself, I did. I've got to, got to leave a longer gap for effect, Philip. It's, yeah, it's for dramatic build, reasons. Building anticipation. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> oh, very good. All right, we're 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 going to have a slightly different format this episode because we have got an amazing guest uh, coming up. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? <laughs> I'd love to. Tell us, tell us about the guest that we've got coming. So, um, one of the things, of course, we'd love to spend some time with is with our writers and oh, one of the great Big Finish writers who um, is well-known outside of Big Finish as well as inside Big Finish, is, of course, Nev Fountain. And so we have Nev Fountain coming and talking to us, telling us about a number of the stories he has written, uh, his passion for different characters, how he's developed them further. And so it's a really engaging conversation. And because of the length, it's quite a long one. So we're not going to have our usual deep dive deep dive down the rabbit hole. Philip, you'll be pleased with that. And we're not going to do our recommendations as we normally do this week. But don't be disappointed because we've got a great chat coming up with Nev Fountain. But um, his first foray into Doctor Who was Death Comes to Time. Do remember that? It was so many years, 20 years ago now. And I remember so here's a bit of- how exciting that was, was coming on because suddenly we had new Doctor Who visually as yeah. well coming it was massive, wasn't it? So let's um let's insert a little clip from Death Comes to Time here, and then we'll have a chat with Nev. So, what have you to report? Anything interesting? Nothing special. We were on Santony. You? Ah, I was chasing the tears of St Lawrence. 
quite magnificent. What for? What for? <laughs> for the spectacle, old boy. Great streams of fire across the heavens. Time was you were the explorer amongst us. Time was. I had time to explore. Tell me, why all the fireworks and the burning bushes? I mean, couldn't you have summoned me in a more discreet manner? Discreet? Who but you would know it was me? Communications could be intercepted. Besides, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with the odd bit of excitement. Perhaps. But I think it might have been wise to be less blatant. By the way, where's your assistant? Oh, she wandered off on her own devices a while ago. I was on a planet in Alniland. Anyway, I prefer travelling on my own. What? But you know the laws. <laughs> laws? I was at the signing of the Treaty of Castle, I don't forget. I swallowed insult after insult. I was made to make sacrifices that I couldn't stand to do, but I did it anyway. And all the while, I knew I could bend time and gravity to make it better. What use is this talk? I mean, what are you saying? You know it's pointless. Haven't you thought these thoughts and forgotten them yet? We can't live with these ideas. They're not for us. Ah, Doctor, that is an ideal. Do you really think we could live amongst them and detach ourselves completely? No one is immune to emotion. But you know what happened here. And do you remember nothing? Oh, anyway, you didn't bring me here for a philosophical discussion, though. No, my dear Doctor, no. I did not. Why here? And why all the secrecy? Two Time Lords have died. Violently. Who died? The Saints, Antenor and Valentine. It uh, bothers me. Why? Even time lords die. No, it's, it's not that. It's deeper. I sense something unnerving, something terrible is about to happen. And I sense that the taking of the lives of Antenor and Valentine is the herald of a, of a larger pattern. I was hoping you would have some thoughts. What do your dreams tell you? Nothing special. What about you? I see water, wells, cataracts, whirlpools. Whirlpools. What does it mean? I wish I knew, but they feel ominous. And the dream lingers in my thinking long after I wake. The first thing is to find out what happened to the saints. Precisely. And as you were closest to their work, you are to investigate that as a matter of urgency. But what about my work at Santony? I'm to go in your place. Oh, is there anything special I need to know? Let me see. Um, 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 uh, Santony. Yes, it's sunny safe, isn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, the Canisians have no doubt invaded by now. Mm -hmm. And you'll be seeding a rebellion, I Exactly. Suppose. I'll transmit the coordinates and contacts when you send me yours. Well then, uh, good luck, Doctor. And to you. And be careful. Of what? I don't know. Whirlpools? So it's uh, a great pleasure to welcome our guest today. Um, many of you will know him as a writer in many different spheres. Um, and of course, one of our favorite big Finnish writers. So welcome, Nev Fountain. Thanks for coming. Well, thanks for having me. That's great. Wonderful. Now, we, we, we like to start with all our guests just in terms of Doctor Who credentials. Um, so, so what's your background with Doctor Who? How did you start getting involved with Doctor Who as an area? Well, my uh, 
involvement with Doctor Who. I suppose involvement with Doctor Who means, you know, um, watching Doctor Who and writing stories about it when you're six. But my first professional uh, Doctor Who thing was Death Comes to Time, which, again, like so many things happened by accident. Uh, a producer I knew called Dan Friedman was getting it up and running and he was in the office next to us. And he put up the Death Comes to Time logo on the on the door and I thought, oh, well, I'll send him an email, see if I can help in any way. And he made me his uh, scientific advisor and a sort of de facto script editor. And uh, that's how it happened. I never intentionally worked into the, uh, into the Doctor Who stuff when I was starting out as a professional writer. I, I couldn't get to grips with the new adventures and um, Big Finish just started up and I was just getting those CDs, but uh, that's how it came to me. Before now, before that, you you've been writing for a while. My, my understanding is you you started writing some theatre plays. Is that how your writing started? Well, I always wanted to write. I knew that. I didn't know what I wanted to write, but keep your options open. I think as Robert Robert Holmes once said, uh, a good writer just says, "I want to write, not I want to write X or Y." So I started writing some fringe plays in London. I did a few comedy plays. And then I started going to meetings at Broadcasting House for Weekending, which was an open door radio for sketch show. And it started, went up from there. That was from the mid 90s onwards. Uh, so I wrote for uh, Weekending, uh, Hudlines, News Quiz, and a bunch of other sketch shows. So you sort of gradually work your way up, you get a commission. Uh, a retainer for working on radio and then I got the Peter Titheridge Award which gave me a bursary for a year and then I moved into television a little bit I worked on The Big Breakfast and a few other shows like that have I got news for you so it, it, it's uh, there was a kind of a ladder in those days for uh, comedy writers of certain type and I was doing that thing from the mid-90s on. Okay so how do you get into writing comedy how, how do you know what's funny and what's not funny? <laughs> I probably didn't know for a while. Um, I'm always regarded as the least funny person in my family. Um, well, um, I went where the money was, to be quite honest. When I was at university, I, uh, <laughs> I wrote all kinds of different things. I wrote a children's story for myself. I wrote uh, a radio play, which wasn't very funny. Um, I just thought comedy was just gelling, uh, gelling for me. When I was at Warwick University, I, I teamed up with an artist friend, uh, Gary Young, and we did a, a series of little three-page stri uh, comic strips for the, for the newspaper, because they appealed to me, uh, based around hippies, and they, they, they went down very well. So I suppose encouraged by what you can do. And there's always a market for comedy. When, you're, uh, when you start off writing drama, you don't, you tend not to know if what you're doing is good enough or dramatic enough. But when it's comedy, it's very immediate. And again, as I said, it's where the money is and the easiest place to go and try and write and start your career in Britain was going to London and going to Radio 4 and doing for these and working on these open door shows. I was actually teaching in Coventry, which I don't know where you know that is. That's about a hundred miles up and west of um, London and I was uh, teaching I, I did a I had a, a job there and um, I was writing sketches and sending them into the BBC and a, a producer called Gareth Edwards sent me a letter back saying these are quite good you should come along to the meetings 
the meetings happened to be in London. So I basically gived, I gave up my teaching and went down, got a job in Hamleys in the toy shop, and then started going to the meetings in, in radio, in radio, in, in broadcasting house. So you sort of go where it's easier to start. And at that time, the easiest place to start was in satirical radio comedy. If there was another opening that was as easy to get into in, say, soaps or drama, I might have gone that way. But you kind of go where there's opportunities. And luckily, uh, comedy and I. Now, probably the most famous comedy show that sort of we know out in Australia is Dead Ringers. Yeah. Um, often because of John Koshaw, I think a lot of us started hearing a lot of stuff from John Koshaw doing his interpretations. Um, so what was you involved with Dead Ringers? Well, uh, Dead Ringers, as a weekending, uh, eventually ended after some 25 years. Um, it, um, it bit the dust. And uh, there are a slew of new uh, comedy shows built in to replace it, because it used to go about 46 weeks a year. So there were, there were panel games and, and new uh, shows coming up, and one sketch show was Dead Ringers. And I and my writing partner, Tom Jameson, sort of started pretty much straight away on that on the pilot. And we both became uh, part of the main team pretty quickly and became the main writers and script editors in quick succession. Uh, by series two, we were writing most of the show. By series three, we were script editing uh, off and on. So that was, that's Dead Ringers. I mean, it was a, a new uh, live comedy satirical show using impressions, sort of like Spitting Image on the Radio, devised by Bill Dare. And by complete coincidence, there was this guy, John Coleshaw, who did his Doctor Who impressions. It, it was a complete coincidence. And we got on well straight away. And he was already doing the Tom Baker stuff. So that, that's all his. Um, but as the years went on and time went on, we had a lot of chats about it. And I was, I was able to sort of, you know, but butt heads with him and, uh, and, and help him with the calls, uh, only in terms of, you know, just Doctor Who nonsense. But he knew all that anyway. I did help him getting the first uh, celebrity phone call with Sylvester McCoy. Uh, and because I've been working with Sylvester on Death Comes to Time, so I had his phone number. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the Doctor Who angle on Dead Ringers was completely John, and I was delighted to see it there. And uh, uh, the minute I heard him do it, I thought, well, this is a guy that I can get on with and work with. And we've been working for with each other for 20 odd years now, 20 years. Well, wow. Death Comes to Time, sorry, Dead Ringers started about 2000, is that right? That's right, yeah. And the death comes to time was about 2001. So are you often juggling several, as a writer, how many different things are you juggling at once? Well, in those days, in my 20s or nearly 30s, I was doing ridiculous amounts because I was young and stupid. And we were, <laughs> my writing partner and I, thank God, I mean, I, I didn't, I worked on death comes to time on my own, but most of my projects were with my writing partner, Tom Jameson. And we were, A, being given work, uh, from our success on weekending and other things, and uh, and B, we were going for work. Uh, we um, approached Private Eye, and uh, we we started working on Private Eye, and then we were writing uh, topical sketch, uh, topical lines on loose ends, uh, Ned Sheeran's loose ends, and 
I mean, at one point in the early 2000s, we were doing about six shows a week and we were going into the broadcasting house about six o'clock in the morning, working on loose ends jokes, then writing Dead Ringer sketches and then working on another show in the afternoon. Uh, I mean, Tom had started on the news quiz and I joined him on the news quiz and we were working, we were working lots and lots of shows because we were young. I don't think we could do that now, but you know, when the work comes to you, you take it. You never, ever say no. I've only ever said no to one job. <laughs> that was a terrible job. But I was glad I said no to it. But in those days, you never said no. I guess I can't ask what the job was. Dwayne? Oh, I'll tell you, actually. It was, it, was <laughs> blind, it was Blind Date. It was a revival of Blind... It was a reboot of Blind Date with Silla Black. I don't know if you know Blind Date, uh, you know. One bloke or a woman sits there, they ask questions and three people are behind the screen and they, they choose the date. And it'd been going for it endless years on, on, on ITV and they were redoing it in a harsher kind of aggressive way, um, like The Weakest Link, you know, uh, making it more nasty. And Cilla Black was, not, was obviously not keen on doing it because we worked on the reboot pilot. But they were going to go ahead with it and they offered us stupidly bad money for a total commitment for about the next 30 weeks. And I just say, well, we've got all these other things we're doing. We do, you know, we love Dead Ringers. We, we're doing all these other shows. We can't really commit to this. We don't even know if it's going to work as Reboot. And sure enough, Scylla Black left after one and a half shows on this new nasty format. So we were very wise to turn it down. I just wanted to ask a question about uh, Death Comes to Time. A along with that yeah. series, there are a couple of other sort of uh, animations that were made for BBC I at the time. Um, do you think those kind of gave the BBC um, an idea of the continuing interest for Doctor Who? So were they kind of partly responsible for the BBC's interest in starting the new series a few years later? I think they were very responsible for... Um for starting the new series. I think there was a kind of a, a received opinion in big corporations, received opinion becomes fact. And, and the received opinion about Doctor Who that it was too complicated to put back on air, that the rights were in a mess. And, and uh, that was it, it was just too hard to do. And uh, BBC, I quietly sorted out the, the, the rights, which weren't as complicated as anyone thought. And they started merrily doing these shows, starting with Death Comes to Time. And when Death Comes to Time went out, we got about a million hits the, the second it went on. I think everything crashed. It was, it was a phenomenon. And I think the BBC were quite shocked. But at the other end of the, uh, of the this story was Lorraine Hegarsey, who was wanting to bring Doctor Who back for some time on BBC. And uh, she was told, oh, it's too complicated. Oh, you know, you've got to have... You've got to eat lots of canapes with 20th Century Fox or Universal and you've got to make a movie or something. And uh, she was getting, I think she was getting a bit impatient because she wanted to remake the big Saturday night lineup and she, she thought Doctor Who would be great. And I think she lost her temper. So I heard she lost her temper after seeing about the third Death Gun, the third BBC animation to say, well, we're making Doctor Who. Uh, but we're doing it on a tiny little platform in an animated form. I really want it, and I'm not going to take no for an answer. That 
is a very, very vague and unspecific way of saying there's probably lots more to it than, than I know. And it's probably a lot, there are a lot more specifics and details and things like that. But that was my impression that the BBCI um, stories basically proved you could do Doctor Who quite easily and proved that it was popular, even though you know, there was always a will to bring it back in some form. There was never a will just to bury it deep. It's just the BBC is a huge bureaucracy and bringing back Doctor Who was a big thing. And it kind of got bogged down in how to do it. And, uh, and Lorraine suddenly just seized up and said, this is the way I'm going to do it. You can do it. I can see you're doing it now. And I don't want to eat any more canapes with, with an American corporation or anything like that. I just want to do it. So that's, that's how I perceive it happened from various sources. Could be wrong, but there you go. I think Russell was pitching. I think, I mean, at the time that comes to time, there are at least three pitches to the BBC about doing, uh, being, doing Doctor Who on television. So they had a lot of options. With Russell bringing back the show, though, is that what killed a second season of Death Comes to Time? No, not really, no. Um, Death Comes to Time was originally a radio pilot. The, the head of radio comedy was a bit of an eccentric, John Pigeon, and he met another eccentric called Dan Friedman who wanted to do Doctor Who. And they cooked up the idea, let's just do it under the radio uh, comedy umbrella and let's just make a pilot. At the time, uh, Radio 4 was very much seen as a woman's channel. They'd done all their, their, their focus groups and demographics and science fiction and horror and all those kinds of things uh, were not seen as things to be put on uh, Radio 4. So they turned it down flat. So, so Dan took his pilot to BBCI. I think Dan would look quite like to have moved it on from Death Comes to Time and maybe gone to television with it. But I think BBCI's attitude was, that was Death Comes to Time. Now um, we're gonna have something from Big Finish and then, um, and then you know, then well, as you see, they mixed and matched. They did the real time. They did the uh, Shada. They did Shada. So, so I think that was always BBCI's policy, just to have Dan do that story and then just move on to other means of providing Doctor Who on on audio mm. or animation. So, in two thousand and three, you come to Big Finish for the first time to do Omega. How did you get involved with Big Finish? I was approached uh, by Gary, which was pretty much out of the blue. And uh, yeah, I think I pitched an idea to Big Finish, which was just a bit, bit bad, um, but I forgot about it. And I think Gary had, had a chat with a few other people who got to know me and they said I was a good type. So he approached me for Omega to see if I wanted to have a go at the, uh, the 40th anniversary, one of the 40th anniversary shows. And I was thrilled and I, uh, and I took it straight away because I, I wanted to do my own Doctor Who. After being stuck with Death Comes to Time for so long, I was keen to write one of my own. Because Death Comes to Time wasn't mine. I could make suggestions, but it wasn't mine. And uh, I was kind of waiting a long time because I, 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 uh, I, I'd sent in a suggestion for Omega and I was waiting for it to be okay. But Gary's asking me to pitch for Omega was actually Gary and me saying, you can write the Omega story. <laughs> So I was assuming I was going to try and pitch stories alongside other people, but he just given me the job and I didn't understand 
you know, one of those communications problems. Were you given options in terms of, were you just told this is the character, this is the doctor? What, what were you given? What did you, what were you able to bring to it? I was given the fifth doctor and I was given no companions. That's the format. That's also the format for Davros, sixth doctor, no companions and master, seventh doctor, no companions. So that's, that was the, the format. It fitted very nicely in what I eventually came up with. Um, just like the format for Kingmaker with the uh, fifth doctor and two female companions fitted in very nicely. You tend to turn these ideas around and you think, well, what can I do with, with, a doctor with no companions that you can't do with doctor and companions. And it eventually, you know, it just turned out very nicely. Doctor Who, Omega. Once upon a time, there was a lonely time plumber called Palix, who worked alongside the great Omega. You may have heard of the great Omega. I was never up in the more obscure figures in Time Lord history. But how do you know this? Because I do. I'm Van Dekirian. Conscience of the universe. Who are you? What are you? What have you got to do with Omega? Omega. That's right. Omega. Perhaps I prefer myself as a monster. Better to shape the universe than to be one of history's victims. You should be on your knees, screaming for the universe to forgive you. For all my reputation as a warlord, a tyrant, a megalomaniac, I am a fragile flower compared to you. Anyone got anything they want to ask? Omega. Anyone? Yes. Didn't you play the Randy Priest in Hearts in Orbit on Channel 30,008? You, my metal friend, are an electronic mugging machine. Would you like to consider another related title, sir? No, I think electronic mugging machine will quite suffice. I am now, as my brother Time Lords knew me before, Doctor. No monster, no tyrant, just the first and greatest scientist of our people. With Omega, I just want to um, bring something up with that. Today, I happened to pull out my DVD copy of Terror of the Vervoids, and there's a documentary on there with you talking about cliffhangers. Um, That's right. One of the most memorable cliffhangers from that early run of Big Finishes comes from Omega. Really nice spin. How how important are cliffhangers in Doctor Who to you, and do, do, uh, do they differ on audio as opposed to... Uh, television, would you say? Or do you use the same formula? I think cliffhangers are great. I mean, I think they're one of the key ways that the show's managed to endure so much because it forces even bad writers to come up with something every 25 minutes. It's about like, like electroconvulsive therapy. Every 25 minutes, you have to throw something else in, whether it's a bad cliffhanger or a good cliffhanger. You've got to ratchet up the tension or you've got to add a new element. I think cliffhangers on audio, they have to be story cliffhangers rather than, uh, you know, a monster burst through the wall. They can't be visual. So they have to be, you know, a twist in the story, a, a revelation that you didn't know before. So you have to think very hard about the way you present your story on audio. You have to look at all the things you want to do and you go, at what point can I introduce this piece of information? Would it be useful as a cliffhanger? How interesting this piece of information is. 
So uh, we talk about cliffhangers and we talk about twists, but I say you have, to, it's just a way of uh, presenting the story so you can add something in every half an hour to, to, to make the story more interesting than it was before. So it's like, you know, first episode, you introduce the concept, it settles down nicely and then you do something. And then second episode, it settles down into that. And then you do something. So a lot of my cliffhangers sort of happen on sort of like the second or third episodes really, because um, I'm saving things up because you know, you have to, <laughs> that's the thing about cliffhangers. You have to save things up. It helps you pace the story actually. You um, gave a lot of compassion uh, in terms of character to Omega, probably more than you had the TV show. Um, also, there's a lot of humor in that uh, episode as well. Um, how much were you trying to bring in humor? How much were you trying to develop the character um, rather than basically on, you know, shouty one of the three doctors and a bit more, um, I don't know, how do you describe him in Ark Infinity? Where, where did you get your ideas from in terms of where you wanted to take that character? Well, I was very happy and excited that I got Omega. In fact, I was, uh, you know, much more happy to get Omega than Davros or Master because he's a very singular character. There's not a lot of him, uh, literally, um, but there's not a lot of him in the in the show. There's just two stories, and uh, it was I saw him very much as a tragic figure on, on a lot of levels. Um, I used to play um, Pink Floyd "Shine On You Crazy Diamond" a lot while I was writing it because he did feel a lot like Sid Barrett, you know, the loony who was responsible for the, the success of the group, but was too, too mad to be in the group. So Omega is very much Sid Barrett and Pink Floyd, but he's also like a Phantom of the Opera character. Uh, again, in the Ark of Infinity, there are, there, are, there are huge parallels to Frankenstein's monster as he's roaming the streets and he can't control his, uh, the deterioration in his, in his body. So he's a wonderfully tragic figure. And there's glimpses of that in The Three Doctor. And there's glimpses of that in Arkham Infinity. And, you know, I did really like that, that lonely guy pressing his nose up against the glass of our universe, wanting to come in. So I started the, the, the premise of Omega from The Flying Dutchman. And it went in all different directions after that. But that's where I started. It, it actually works very much, very well for, for radio, having a solitary, lonely figure, because, you know, the less characters you need to bring in. Doing Omega is probably more fun than doing the Daleks or the Cybermen, because you have a person you can interact with and explore their character and their frustration. So I really did like that. As for the comedy, I always write comedy. I, I think the best way to get into character is through comedy. Uh, you know, if you just do drama, 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 you miss an aspect of the human condition because people are funny all the time, even in terrible situations. You know, the automatic instinct of when you meet anyone in the street is to make a humorous comment or crack a joke. So if you start off with your characters as funny, I think you care more about them when bad things happen to them. And that's certainly the case with in Omega with Daland and Professor Eticus. You know, these are people you get to know and you get to like and you like them because they're funny in certain kinds of ways. Dallin is quite pompous, so is Urticus in his way, you know, um, a bit of a bore, but, 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 you know, got a twinkle in his eye. And you've got to give a twinkle, and you've got to give the humour first before you do terrible things to them, because if you just introduce a character who's flat and has no humour to them, you don't care about them. Yeah. Okay, um, so 
it was three years before he came back again to do the Kingmaker. Um, yeah. Now, how, how did that come about? Was that was that a pitch that you gave? More more of a historical had companions, or was were you approached again and given notes? That that was a pitch. That was a pitch I sent to Gary. I just said, "What would it be like if the Doctor had to do something really awful to keep the web of time going?" You know, because uh, history, history is very much a lot of history is where the baddies win, and the Doctor has this sort of weird, sort of he's facing two ways. You know, he's on the side of good when he's in a, a normal science fiction story, but when he's in a historical, he normally has to watch the baddies win, uh, like in the Aztecs, and a lot of that in the French Revolution. And you know, bad things have to happen; he's got to watch them happen. So I said, you know, why? He's in the historical and he has to, for the sake of the time, actually have to do something really, really awful. And I just threw out as an example, killing the princes in the tower. And Gary said, that's great. Can you do that for the fifth doctor with Perry and Eremen? So I was kind of stuck with that. And it took me a long time to actually get the concept of the idea to work. I threw in lots of elements to try and make it work uh, until I finally got a story that, that I was happy with. You know, I threw in the meddling monk at one point, which Gary said no to, thank God. I had the scalifraying suicide squad uh, that would, you know, expend regenerations by pretending to be historical figures who'd already been killed by other time-traveling people. So, <laughs> so lots, lots and lots and lots of ideas and, and, and lots and lots of ways to present the story of Richard III. And again, the, the revelation of the twists came to me bit by bit. The similarity. Can I do spoilers in this? Yeah, I think that's old enough now to do spoilers. <laughs> I mean, the similarity in Shakespeare and, and the Master just just came to me at one point and made me laugh. I, 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 you know, at one point I was having Shakespeare as the de facto companion of the Fifth Doctor and, and have Shakespeare kill the princes in the Tower for the same reason that he that he talks about in the Kingmaker. But I I couldn't that couldn't happen because I can't have kids being killed in Doctor Who. I just could not do that. And then I had uh, Perinera men dressing up as the princes in the tower in some, because there's two of them, there's two princes. So that made logic to me in, in one storyline. And then I thought, well, why don't we take this a stage further? Why are they being used? They're girls. Why should they be used to be, pretend to be the princes? Oh, the princes could be girls. Oh, well, that makes sense historically. So I probably hit on a very real historical reason why the princes in the tower could not take over from <laughs> in, the, in the succession. So it's always a question of uh, working on ideas a bit at a time and working through things and, you know, turning the pieces like the key to time until they fit into one perfect square and just turning the elements around until they all fit together nicely. I mean, it did take a long time to do The Kingmaker. One of the things people say when they hear comedy uh, things like The Kingmaker or Abigail, it says, well, the writer obviously had a lot of fun doing it. And that really annoys me because I hated writing Kingmaker. It took far <laughs> too long for me. And it was just a very hard slog job to get, get everything right. Um, the first scene I wrote had two characters in it that, 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 that didn't appear in the final draft because I was trying to fit two years worth of history into two hours. So I had a scene with the Woodbills, which never happened. The characters never were there. I had too many characters. Thankfully, Gary helped a lot 
with 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 Colleen Favors, but you know it's such a huge part of history. Um, I actually did one episode. I wrote one whole episode with with the, the Tom Baker narrator, John Coulson doing the Tom Baker like he was doing a, a Little Britain sketch, because I was worried <laughs> about going forwards in time. So I thought I should have a narrator like the guide to actually explain where I am. And I realized it didn't have to because it was written fine. So I took all that out as well. So it's just, just, just working through ideas and working through approaches and working through where these things go. It was a, it was a long, painful job. But I'm very, very, I was very, very pleased with it by the end. Right. It's about half past 1485. I'm heading for a little tavern on Fleet Street called The Kingmaker to do a little detective work. Someone once told me it can be a useful place to find out all sorts of stuff. You can't miss it, just uh, head for St Paul's Cathedral. Uh, the old Norman one, not the one with the dome. That's not there yet. Uh, I'll meet you there in three hours' time. And don't be late. Greetings, Earl Rivers. I greet you in the name of the new king. And greetings to you, Lords Gloucester and Buckingham. Well, what can I say? This is a most lovely surprise. Good evening, sir. I am Susan, and I will be your serving wench for this evening. Would you like to sit in carousing or non-carousing? Ha-ha! <laughs> Less of the Mr. Clary, Doctor. They'll start to think me a gentleman. Don't stand on ceremony, Doctor. Folks call me one-armed Clary, don't they, boys? Um, Perry... Is it a custom of this age for a man to place a hand on your bottom as a form of greeting? Not really, no. Aramem, did you just break that guy's arm? Yes. For your information, sir, this is my travelling machine, my magic cabinet that takes me to places beyond your imagination. So you're a demon, are you? Uh, That depends. Do they burn individuals that show sign of devilry in this century? Yes. Well, in that case, I am a wise and benevolent sorcerer. He's some kind of robot. His arms are soft. He seems real from this end. Oh, my God, this bit's detachable. He's not real. Sure you're all right. We're We're fine. fine. We've got to get out of here. There's something nasty and alien happening here. We have to find the doctor. Well, he did come out of this thing, sire, the like of which I have never seen before. And they do say that unusual portents crop up at the time of a coronation. Who says? Well, they do. The ones who do say. You know, they who do say. Well, as long as we're being specific. You think I'm capable of killing a couple of kids? Murdering them in cold blood? Snuffing out a couple of young lives before they'd even begun? Do you know what this means, Perry? It means we're not going to change history. We are history. We're part of it. It's not possible. I think we have solved the mystery. It's us, Perry. It is we who kill the princes in the tower. Sometimes, Aramem, your ability to point out the flaws in my otherwise perfect plans errs on the irritating. Doctor Who, you have transgressed your deadline. Your contract has been violated. Now that's just what I thought you'd say. The actor who played uh, Richard III in uh, in The Kingmaker, was that... Was that purposefully casted to sound like a, a, a dead ringer, so to speak, of, of Chris Eccleston? Or was that just that his voice suited uh, the the personality that you're writing there in the script? I have no idea. Gary cast him. I suggested casting Arthur Smith and, uh, and um, who played the master, uh, the, who played Shakespeare. I always... I, I don't know, never mind. 
I, I suggested about three or four people, and he quite graciously used them. But I never, I never suggested Stephen Beckett. I, I, I wanted him to be a Northern warrior, so I suggested someone like Sean Bean, or cheaper, and <laughs> Stephen Beckett. Stephen Beckett came up, so um, uh, that that's it. Um, it was a complete coincidence. I think I put in a couple of fantastics because I knew the, the character was going to have a Northern accent. So I thought there would be some fun about having a character with a Northern accent doing some Christopher Eccleston uh, catchphrases. I think it had just come out, Doctor had just come out when I was finishing the writing. But I had no idea that Stephen Beckett was going to sound so much like Christopher Eccleston. I had no idea. I don't think most people see the work that goes into writing. But I mean, you look at the Kingmaker, you look at the history involved, you look at, I mean, there's all the history of Richard III, there's the history of Shakespeare, there's the putting it together, there's the marrying of different companions, getting your head around um, Ehrman in terms of, as a big Finnish companion, I, I don't know how much you would have listened or heard, knew about her before you wrote for her. I did, a, I had listened to The Eye of the Scorpion and um, I did actually send some feelers out about, uh, on the web, as it was then, uh, you know, a couple of chat groups that I was on saying, tell me about Eremem. And I think David Darlington sent me a really detailed uh, character summary of her. And I was keen not, I think at that point I was maybe writing her a bit like Leela. And then I realized I got the hang of her. And uh, I think I, I got Eremem pretty good. This to the, one of the funniest lines for me was when she asked Perry, is it, nor is it customary to have for a man to place his hand on a woman's bottom in this time? <laughs> and Perry says, no. And so she just breaks the arm. And the, the worst sound effect, like it just, every time I hear that, I go, ah, because it's, it's so well, the soundscape's so well done. Well, I like about a joke like that is it's a joke that has meaning because it turns up later and it helps the story that, that Clary has a nickname one-armed Clary, which tells the fifth doctor, the Perineromem, they'd met Perineromem two years before. So I love jokes that have a purpose that make you laugh and, and actually help the plot. So yeah, I'm, a, I'm, I'm very fond of that arm-breaking thing. <laughs> now, during this time as well, I'm assuming you're writing your books, because I know there was, uh, is it three books, Mervyn Stone? The yeah, Detective? Um, mm. So you start off with writing plays into comedy, radio, and prose, um, how do you find the different sort of writing styles overlap or not? Well, um, I think writing scripts is a faster process and a more collaborative process. You're kind of giving yourself, you're giving your, your version of the story out to people and leaving them to interpret it how they feel. There's much more control in, in writing a book I always compare uh, writing a script and writing a book as to drawing a picture in chalks and then painting a picture in oils. Uh, you know, writing a script is much like drawing in chalks. It's faster, it's quicker, the strokes are broader. But writing a book is very much like uh, painting in oils because you're responsible for every little dab. You know, you can describe a, a, a room very specifically, you can describe a person very specifically. You can put everything they said in, in, a, in, a, in a way, you know, they said sadly. You can, you can dictate how everyone says things in a way you probably would annoy an actor if you did it in a script. 
it is the ultimate control writing a book. And sometimes it's exhausting because the thing about writing, and this is why writing is very hard and it's quite exhausting. And there's a thing called writer's block that a lot of people have. It's, it's, it's making decisions all the time. And the brain gets exhausted making decisions. I mean, writing a script, you can go, oh, well, you know, they'll sort that out. I don't have to make a decision about this particular thing. I can just write electronic noises uh, when the doctor's doing something. Or, or I can just write, you know, uh, you know, uh, distort when there's a monster. So you can, they can sort out how the monster sounds like in that kind of way. But when you're writing a book, every decision, every word you put down has to be your decision. And it is very, very tiring. And that's what people don't get about writing. And that's what people don't get about this thing called writer's block. What you do to get over writer's block is not to care as much about the decisions you're making, but if you start to care too much, you end up absolutely paralyzed. And I think that's happened to me a little bit, a few times. You just gotta get over that and just go, I'm gonna make this decision. It might be wrong. I might have to fix it later. And it might be exhausting to fix it because this turning might have sent this, this story in a completely the wrong direction. I mean, for the books, I had to junk. I started Geek Tragedy, which is the first Mervyn Stone book. I knew I wanted to write a murder mystery and I knew I wanted to write a murder mystery set in the science fiction, you know, fan universe thing, the convention thing. But I hadn't got the mystery kind of sorted out in my head. And I ended up junking probably about 80% of the book, about 60,000 words in completely rewriting it. I think the, the murderer was originally the victim and the victim was the murderer and all kinds of other stuff was doing. People were forging mixings uh, uh, from the void monsters. There were huge subplots and things, things that went nowhere, things that weren't interesting enough. And when I hit upon the actual style of murder and the motivation for the murder, I had to junk a whole lot because I hadn't gone into the book knowing exactly where I was going. Books two and three, uh, three was very, very quick because I knew exactly where I was going with three. Two was a kind of hybrid. Again, I started book three last, finished it first. I started book one first, finished it last. So that gives you the idea. Uh, you know, it, the Geek Chastity took years from, uh, um, Cursed Among Sequels, the third book, took two months because I knew where I was going and the decisions were easier. If you don't know where you're going, the decisions are harder because you don't know where you're going. Are you writing any novels at the moment? Trying to. I'm having the same old problem. Um, I've got a book that I'm writing at the moment, a, a serious thriller to, to follow up from my book from 2015, Painkiller. And... Um, it's that thing about making decisions. It's a story that I want to tell, but I want to tell it in the best way possible. And I keep changing my mind about the way I'm going to tell it, you know, going from, you know, present tense to past tense, from first person to third person. Uh, is this character relevant? Is this character right? And uh, the decisions are all tough and they take time and it's hard to do. So yeah, it's, it never gets any easier. So is crime fiction one of your other passions? I love crime fiction ever since I started reading Agatha Christie's when I was in my early teens. Why I love genre, I mean, I like Stephen King as well. I like a good horror book. 
Um, I like the structure and, and, and discipline of, of genre. The, the, a good science fiction, a good mystery book, a good comedy has structure and, and the purity of structure. The only thing when structure goes out the window is when you're writing kind of like a, an abstract play or an abstract, uh, you know, something dramatic and, uh, you know, a novel with a capital N, which, you know, you find hard going. I think why I like genre, why I like mysteries and, uh, and science fiction and comedy is because the, 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 the structure is so important and you can't violate uh, certain aspects of those, of those structures. You can do wonderful things with characterization. You can do wonderful things uh, with your imagination. But if the structure is not there, then you're dead. Then it's dead in the water. Stephen King would know, Douglas Adams knew. The structure is very important. Douglas Adams knew comedy structure, he knew, he knew science fiction structure. That's probably why you know he took so long to write his books because he knew he knows the structure is so damn important. I like that clarity. I like the clarity. Uh, I think even when I was a kid and enjoying Doctor Who, I didn't realize it, but I was appreciating the structure of the episodes and the structure of the format. Same reason that I'd like Columbo. The structure of the format is wonderful. The things you can do within that structure are fantastic, but you have such a restriction on you. And I, it really appeals to me what you can do within the structure. You know, you get a really fabulous Columbo episode, a really good Doctor Who story. It just shows you how, what you can do within the structure of that particular genre and that particular style of television program. Um, one of my favourite stories that you've written recently and you destroy the structure in so many ways and break so many rules is the Missy story of the broken clock. Yeah. Where, where I mean, which I, I've listened to that several times because I laugh and laugh because it's so funny but just the way you keep breaking the fourth wall and the way you use radio and voice is quite unique was that a hard story that you came to how did, how did you come up with that nouveau mystery murder mystery throwing in time throwing in radio plays how did that idea come to you uh I um Suggested an idea. We, I'd been, I had been approached to write a Missy story, and I suggested an idea which I thought was okay, but I was really struggling to get right. So in desperation, I said to Matt Fitton, uh, "I don't want to do this idea anymore. I'd like to do, I'd like to say an idea. I'd like to do because it's difficult to have Missy in a room with anyone. So I like to do, you know, like one of those things they do in in American television where they do a, a, a true crime episode where they report on a on an actual uh, story." Through, a different, through the medium. So you can actually tell the story. A bit like, I suppose, like Live 34 in Big Finish, like you're telling the story, but through through a, a true crime documentary. And Matt Finn says, ah, oh, that's great. You can have Missy come in and criticise the, um, you know, the way it's being done. And, and I thought, okay. And I went away and I took that very, very seriously. I said, well, how, how on earth can, can that happen? That, that's just crazy what what are we talking about Matt? in my head unfortunately i i am a huge fan of uh pirandello uh six characters in search of an author etc etc so I, I i do like that fourth wall breaking stuff i like playing with what you've got in the medium and um so so a lot of those things come together i was very comfortable doing it it, it didn't take a long time to write uh some of the logic points uh, I, I was grappling with, but it, um, no, it was, it's pretty, pretty fun. It was, it felt like it was very much in my comfort zone 
doing that kind of thing, being very self-aware. I also remember an old Alan Moore future shock about a, a man trying to invent a time machine and alienating his wife and his child and eventually just drowning himself <laughs> and then watching his life flash before his eyes and just happy because this time machine finally worked. So I, I use that element of your life going before your eyes because you're dying in a TARDIS. Um, so yeah, I, I, it was very comfortable to me um, writing that story. Uh, it was fun because um, it felt like the, the, the structure, the, 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 the atmosphere of the story was so bonkers that it was, you could do Missy in it and uh, you can have her do things. I'd say it's very difficult to you would put someone like Hannibal Lecter in a story and, and how do they stop killing people? Uh, how, how do you, because they're so such dangerous characters. So Missy is as playful as the story is and you, she just isn't obliged to kill everyone the minute she gets there because she wants something and she's doing it through the, the, the style of this, this crazy story. And she's enjoying herself because it is crazy. Yeah, it's utterly bonkers, <laughs> which is good. In terms of knowing Missy, then are you current? Are you watching the current shows? Had you seen Missy the TV show, or did you just do some research beforehand? Yeah, I watched. Um, I watched all the new series. You know, I, I, I'm a big fan. I'm fortunate, and I'm a big fan of the old series and the new series. I know people get put into camps one or the other, but. Um, I'm a huge fan of both Russell C. Davis's work and Stephen Moffat's work, so I was in. I was watching right the way through. Yeah, I love Missy as a, as a as a as a character, and I thought she had a very fitting story arc, as we say. And um, great, great admirer of Michelle Gomez. Is that her name? And yes, I think she did. I think I did. I think she did a wonderful job. And uh, uh, yeah. No, I, I, I watched them anyway. I didn't have to do any research. I did have to do a bit of research for my River Song and go back to watch A Good Man Goes to War. But uh, I think Missy just came out on the page. Thing is, if you're enjoying an actor doing a part, it's very easy to write for that actor. You don't have to uh, quote their words back to them. You know, you don't have to go back to a Doctor Who story and just regurgitate bits of dialogue. You can write a piece of dialogue and go, yeah, I can see you're really enjoying that piece of dialogue and doing that. So you don't have to plagiarise someone. You just have to think of words or phrases or, or, or angles that you think that can really enjoy getting their teeth into. And I heard Michelle enjoyed it a lot. So it's, that's good to know. Yeah. I think you're writing for the actor as well as for the character as well. Because you do, you always write, you know, you write, thought, how would Tom write like saying this line how would colin like saying this line rather than oh let's give colin that line he said in twin dilemma back again which is like death so uh you, you know you, you can't pastiche you can only go forward and you go forward by listening to what they enjoy saying on the original show the lines they that they, they've really done well and got to grips with and that's with michelle gomez you can see the bits of business from Stephen's work that she really got her teeth into. And you go, oh yeah, yeah, I can see the kind of actress she wants or actor she wants, she is. So it's a lot of fun to write. Yeah. Um, earlier we, uh, we've reviewed our favorite stories and the, what happened last year, Big Finish. And during that review, I was saying that for me, 
one, one of the great highlights for last year was actually the Six Doctor and Perry collection. And your story, particularly the, the conflict theory story, which I just thought was brilliant in terms of Freud and psychology. And you know, once again, all that knowledge you brought and made it so accessible, funny, but then terrifying. Was that another story that took a lot of work to put together in terms of prior knowledge and research or did that just come together again? Um, I, I should the, the voices, the Sixth Doctor and Perry are the voices you seem to really resonate with. How did that come together? I've said on many occasions why I like them. I like the fact that the older Perry is more self-sufficient and the, and the Sixth Doctor has always seemed a bit flaky to me and, and, and you know, less able to deal with things, um, which is probably what the aim was for, because that's what Nathan Turner said for the fifth doctor and that kind of thing continued with the sixth doctor. Um, so they feel a bit, what, uh, Tracy and Hepburn, they, they feel like equals in lots of ways. Obviously they're not, but uh, they feel like a very, very modern doctor companion relationship in the 21st century. If you allow them to do the things that, the production team was trying to do with him from the start. Uh, you know, Perry was always meant to be more self-assured and, and, and more into going places than say Tegan. When she's complaining, she's always about not going to interesting enough places. She is meant to be the committed companion to going to places. There's never an issue about wanting to go back to here or going back to there or finding a, finding a nest or you know, finding a home world. To settle on there's never any, any any hint of that so i do enjoy writing for them because you know they basically just hurl themselves into danger a pair of them um conflict theory was i was trying to write find a story that worked with scott for the sixth doctor and perry i'd suggested bringing the the older perry back with the sixth doctor because i just thought people were always asking nicola when or where where is the older Doctor and Perry going? And I was probably around a lot when she was getting asked that. So I said to Big Finish, you know, are we going to do anything with this? And they said, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We'll do a, we'll do a box set. And we discussed a lot about direction to go, and I, and I put a lot of pins in the wall, and they all fell out. I think what the Big Finish eventually wanted to do was a celebration of Perry and the Doctor, the Sixth Doctor, so we couldn't do any kind of like huge traumatic arcs or anything like that. But I wanted to do something which really explored where they are now uh, without throwing them in the, bit, in the pits of hell. So I thought, okay, a space counselor. Space counselors is good. That's gonna be a good start. And I've often thought about the relationship with the Doctor and Perry about how she elected to join the TARDIS and the Doctor's difficult relationship with uh, companions who elect to join the Tides, who come onto the Tides rather than stow away or a rescue. And uh, I invented this, this rationale for why the Doctor turns them away. Obviously, this is a completely made-up rationale. It's simply to do with the conventions of the show again. If someone elects to join the Tides, it's much harder to get rid of them. If someone joins the Tides from an act of desperation like Vicky, it's much easier to put them in a, in a place where they're, where they're going to be happy. Uh, if, you, if you get where I'm, I'm, I'm going on this, you know, if you're being rescued from somewhere horrible, like a Dalek world, then they will want to find stability. But if it's like Sarah Jane, who's just happily joining the TARDIS, how do you get rid of them? Or Rose, 
you put them in another dimension, you wipe their mind, you, you basically kick them out of the TARDIS. And I said, well, that's, that's the convention, but how does that work psychologically? How does the doctor, how can we put a psychology on top of that? Does the doctor feel guilt that he's allowing this person to voluntarily um, travel with him? So I know, I mean, all these things are in my head anyway. So it's, it's nice to put them down within a framework of, of doing robo Freuds. So again, that was another quite easy one to write. I enjoyed writing that. Once I'd hit on robot Sigmund Freud's and the Doctor and Perry sorting themselves out, it's great fun to write about a relationship in a, in, in a different sense. So it was almost like a relationship counselor, like they were you know, in marriage counseling to keep them going as, as, as a couple. So that's fun, that's fun. That just takes the, the relationship in a different area, uh, you know, one story. So all those things appealed to me, so it was quite easy to write. Sorry. <laughs> all these things are quite... I've told you about the other one that's easy to write. Yeah, it, it, it's either, um, I guess, exploring them psychologically, you were taking us down a path where we were believing what the doctors were saying. It's very easy, and then, of course, you turned the whole thing on its head along the way in terms of, yeah, it was, it was I, I don't know what the technique was you'd call it, but in terms of you, you helped us believe we were going in a particular direction and this psychological analysis and we were taking all this quite seriously. And in the end, of course, that wasn't what was going on at all. It was a total reversal of the, the professional standard. I do a lot. I mean, I do, uh, I like putting the doctor out of his comfort zone. And I like the doctor doing things you wouldn't expect him to do. One of the reasons I like Twin Dilemma so much is the Doctor deciding to become a hermit because that's something he doesn't normally do. And in Omega, he goes on holiday. In Kingmaker, he he basically starts researching a book. I like these things when he doesn't he does things which are not Doctor Who-ish. And going to a relationship counselor is not very Doctor Who-y. But then you have to rationalise why he's doing these things. And uh, then the usual thing is it's a trap. To, to, to get to where he wants to do it. And it's disguising more Doctor Who convention friendly story. And a lot of people were saying, well, this is, I'm a bit disappointed because I pulled the rug out and, and there was no psychology, but I didn't say that none of that was true, wasn't true. I mean, all that stuff could still be there. The Doctor's relationship is underlying psychology. He just used it in a very typical fashion. He used his psychology about his companions to beat the bad guys. I didn't say that they were lying completely. Um, you can take all that as true, but I just think the doctor chooses not to address it at all, which is a very Doctor Who thing. I don't address this problem I have with uh, the, the moral difficulties of having companions. I am aware of it, which is a very Doctor Who thing. I'm aware of this problem. I'm aware of the fact that I, I take defenseless young women around the galaxy in the universe and spread them to danger. I'm aware of the double standards in taking, either taking uh, companions with me or rescuing people from, from dreadful situations. I'm aware of all that, but I choose not to address it because I'm the doctor, but I will use it. I will use it to beat some robotic uh, Sigmund Freuds. I think that's very Doctor Who. I think you can choose to believe whatever is said in that, that Freud those Freud analyses. The fact that the Doctor and Barry don't address it doesn't mean to say that doesn't, didn't happen. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, The Companion Chronicles, Perry and the Piscon Paradox. Hi, I'm Perry. 
Hi, I'm Dr. Purple Gilliam Brown. I'm a first year botany student at Cal State. I'm 40 several years old. I travel with my friend, the doctor. And I'm currently resting between my third and fourth marriage and my 91st and 92nd diet. But here's the twist. We left the TARDIS. The doctor was holding a small black device like a TV remote, pointing at Santa Monica Bay, and the device chirped. Alien technology. That must be him. Come on, Perry. The game's afoot. Something walked over my grave. I turned and saw a woman looking at me from across the street. But I'm sure my mind is playing tricks. The girl I see looks far too young to be me. My God! What was I wearing? I can't help myself. I just have to meet her. I am Major Zorn of the Piston Law Enforcement Squad. Where is Zal? I rushed around the back of the deli counter and ran out. I ran, wobbling in my unsuitable shoes. My God, I thought. I'm being hunted down by fish. How heroic. How stupid. Something happened here, Perry. Something that gave you two futures. Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com. Um, you spent a lot of time making Perry a lot more complex. I think you first did that with the Perry and the Piscon. Oh, Perry and the Piscon Paradox. Paradox thank you. Um, and that's that the double CD where you had the young Perry, the old Perry, and then actually really explored what had become of Perry. And then Widow's Assassin did similar, and then of course this box set. Um, is it part of you? I guess why 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 did you come to wanting to make Perry as more complex, timeliney, whimy um, as as you have? Well, I think uh, again, I, 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 if I was given like a, a dodo box set, I might have done that to dodo. But the fact is that David Richardson asked me to do a Perry story. Uh, shortly afterwards, uh, Nicola had said to, I say this often, Nicola had been to a big finish recording, and this we were just being cute, I think, because uh, Nicola had said to David Richardson, my boyfriend would quite like to write a big finish audio. <laughs> and of course, that's, that's, that's the thing a producer really doesn't want to hear. And when she said, but as my boyfriend's now found him, is that a problem? And then they gave us, David, Oh, phew. <laughs> and then he came back to me and said, Oh, I didn't, we hadn't been using you for a while because we thought you were so busy, but do you want to write a Companion Chronicles? And I said, Yes. He said, Would you like to write a Perry Companion Chronicles for your girlfriend? And I said, Yes. And he said, Well, how about one that starts with the fifth doctor and ends with the sixth doctor? I thought, That's a great idea. I, I like to do that, that, uh, that one, a Perry Companion Chronicle in both camps. And I fused it with a lot of other things, things that Nicola wanted to do with Perry, uh, things that I had in my head as well, like fish people, people becoming fish to through plastic surgery, uh, you know, um, uh, aliens. And I had an idea, I did have an idea a while back about the doctor having to be his own villain because he accidentally destroyed the villain. And, he, and in order for the web of time, he's got to pretend to be the villain and dress up as the villain. So I had that before. So all these things slotted together. The psychology came out of it because writing a companion chronicle is a very intimate process. And if you don't have a, a cast of characters and a, lots of events and things happening as you do in a full cast, then 
what is there but psychology to do? And I'd accidentally given myself a double disc story. They hadn't planned on it being a double disc, disc a double disc story. Uh, they just thought, oh, half an hour for Fifth Doctor, half an hour for six. And I said, well, no, I can't do it like that. It's got to be a double disc. So they, they commissioned the first double disc, Companion Chronicles. Uh, and uh, that's the way it went, really. You fill two hours and you go slowly and more directly into the character. I think if I was given a Companion Chronicles about another character, then that might have happened too. And after that, it just seemed like I was kind of tidying up and, and doing things and starting and ending things that I started in Perry and the Piscon Paradox. With Widow's Assassin, uh, Alan Barnes asked me specifically, do you want to do this story we're bringing Perry back after Mind Warp? And I had lots of ideas to do it. I didn't necessarily want to have to go back into her psychology, but there is an element that sort of has to really, especially in my work. But there's, there's also an element of the doctor's psychology as well. So I think, you know, you just led down this path. You ne nothing is ever planned. You just led down this road that you, that you end up doing. Someone once, asked, someone once asked me, you're the fifth Doctor writer, aren't you? And I'd only done two stories. I didn't know Megan and Kingmaker. I go, no, because I've been asked to do two stories. And now I'm the sixth Doctor and Perry writer because I've been asked to do all these stories. You know, you, you, you do what you're asked. So I don't think there's a lot of planning. But, you know, you, you go and do the best job you can from being asked to do things. So do you run ideas past Nicola? Do you tell her, tell her what you're doing or do you just finish? Does she just get the completed script at the end and... No, do no she, never, she never reads anything I do. <laughs> if it's about Perry, I, I never give her anything before it goes off to big finish. Mainly because um, she'll find bits she'd look, she would like and, and big finish would take them out or I would take them out, you know. So she doesn't want that kind of, uh, oh, I really love that scene kind of thing. Oh, why are you doing that? I mean, The Widow's Assassin, I really put Perry through the ringer. And all oh, that was a complete surprise to her when she got the script. I kind of hinted at what I was going to do. And uh, I think it's always well to just verbally say, I'm thinking of doing this to Perry just to see her reaction. But no, she, didn't read a, she doesn't read a word of the scripts before they go anywhere. Maybe with Perry and the Piscon Paradox, because that was such a big ask to do the performance. Uh, I might have sent her my version just before Big Finish sent her theirs. But that was just because it's her talking for two hours solid and uh, no one wants to go in cold like that. So uh, maybe I gave her a bit more of an idea, but not during the process of writing. Never do it. Never during the process of writing. Well, she really shows all her acting muscles in the Perry and the Piscon Paradox. She's brilliant, it's, isn't she? It's, it's an ama amazing work. I mean, when I was 15 and I first saw her in Planet of Fire, I thought this was a fantastic introduction for a companion. This is a person who was really making a mark on the show from the, from the absolute get-go. I don't think I was as impressed with an introduction to a companion since I'm, uh, Sarah Jane or Leela. She really does give it her all. And, you know, I was so impressed with that acting from Planet of Fire onwards. So it's a delight. It's a delight. She is a fantastic actor. And you know she will do anything you ask to, she, to, to the best of her ability. And you know you can give her these things and do them. Like that last um, speech in Perry in Piscon Paradox where she's screaming at her other self. You know she's going to do a damn good job at it. You know she's going to do it really well and then take it seriously. And, you know. Do a fantastic job. 
Yeah, the emotion was huge. Dwayne, anything else? I was waiting for you to ask about um, blood on Santa's claw, Philip. <laughs> I was. I wasn't sure I was going to talk about everything. <laughs> um, I actually finished. I listened to Blood on Santa's Claws again today, um, which I remember when, the first time I listened to. Now, once again, I'm not sure about spoilers, and so I'm not sure whether we should be putting this on or not. In just in terms of the fact that, or it's written. I listened to it thinking it was four different stories by four different writers, and then at the end came to realize the fact that actually no, you'd written the whole work, and then I then I worked out the pseudonyms and the. <laughs> the names you gave the other writers um, who've never written for Big Finish again, strangely enough. Um, yeah. why, why did you decide to do a story in that... To, yeah, to, to trick us. Why, why, why that choice? Well, I often wanted to do a story in which... I mean, this goes back to doing Mervyn Stone. I had an idea that it would be really cool to do a murder mystery in which the character, the detective, solves the crime and then in the second book turns out that he hadn't at all and that it was, he was completely wrong. <laughs> so I, I like the idea of the doctor solving a, a, a story as he does, you know, beating the bad guy. But in fact, by winning, he's actually losing. And, and uh, doing something which, which has an impact in another direction. I think it's kind of unintended, consequ unintended consequences, like in Omega, the, the doctor accidentally kills the scintillans and the sixth doctor in 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 Blood on Santa's Claw just does a great thing. He releases the the little animals and he closes down the the what's it called <laughs> the uh, the designer babies uh, company. But all this is designed so that um, these things won't be available to fight the, the the characters in episode four. I am doing spoilers now, by the way. Um, so I wanted to do a series of stories and. I wanted to make them separate and then have them all come together again. And um, I just thought, yeah, yeah, I'll do pseudonyms because if I've written the whole thing, you'll know it's heading somewhere. You, you'll know that's the, that's the thing. So it'd be nice to have an element of surprise and go, oh, I've got, I'm listening to a story, then we're listening to a different separate story. Then I'm listening, oh, oh, now they're all together. That's great. And a lot of people said to me, well, they'll get it. They'll look for Alan Terrigo and, and pseudonym and find out that they didn't written for Big Finish and they don't exist. And I go, yes, that's true. A lot of people will get it. But you will be surprised how many people just pop in the CD and just take everything at face value and have them have it as a surprise. There's still people coming up to me and going, wow, I was so blown away when Colin was in the second disc of Piss Perry and the Piscon Paradox. And he's actually credited on the cover. You know, it's like, you, you honestly don't take, and there's not, nothing against you for that at all, but I'm, I'm glad you were surprised. I'm glad that you are not so invested in, in Big Finish that you go and look up every detail of the cast before you go to a, go to a CD. I often say, actually, I, I make a deliberate choice not to look at anything. I, I, I generally don't even look at the writer. Um, I don't even focus particularly on the title. I don't think about that. I just want to listen to it. And, and be taken away. And, so, and then maybe halfway through, I'll think, I know a couple of voices, I'll go look at the cast list. Um, and that, so maybe halfway through, I, I then go and look to see who wrote it, who's the cast. But I try to not know anything before I start a story, because I, I want to be taken by the story. And if I've done too, too much, I, it blows, blows it for me. I, I, I agree. And that's me too. If I'm 
if I'm watching a film by M. Night Shyamalan, I'm actually trying not to look for a twist because I want to be surprised by it. I'm trying not to guess things. And if I'm watching a murder mystery, I'm, I'm really trying not to, to get ahead of people because I'm just enjoying the ride. And uh, yeah, that's me too. Obviously, I don't do that all the time, but if it's, uh, if it's a story that requires a certain amount of surprise, and I know that, I try to avoid, you try to avoid spoilers. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting... Um, I mean, I, I think Blood of Santa Claus works so well, though, because you do actually, the tone is different in each of the stories, which is, which is common for, you know, for those sets where you have four different stories, different, four different authors, then it usually is quite a different tonal change. And you, each, the first three episodes, the, the tone changed. I mean, mm. you, know, you, put, you put Perry through the ringer again, emotionally with the whole child thing. So there's, but, and there's others which are more lighthearted. And it, so it's, it does totally shift, which is why I hadn't picked up that it was the same author. So would be very relentless if it was the same tone for all four stories. And again, it goes back to being a writer. If you start on a, a, on a particular premise, you tend to write towards that premise and your, your own writing style changes to accommodate it. Uh, yeah, I see a lot of people ask me again, oh, you write like this and you write, you know, you write this thing in this way, don't you? And you, you, do, you do that Douglas Adams thing and you do that thing. I go, I, I start with a story and it gets as dark or as humorous or as funny or as goofy as the story dictates. If you look at my... Dorian Gray episode, The Immortal Game. There is not a funny line in it. That is because that's what the story and the premise dictated. It's a story about ideas and about the nature of good and evil. And the conventions of that dictated no jokes. And my last thriller, A Painkiller, it's a dark subject. There's a lot of humour in there, but it does not overwhelm the darkness of the subject. Uh, humor can be everywhere, but you dial it back when there's a story that doesn't require it. And that's that's a question of instinct as a writer, knowing when to dial it back and when to just go for it. Now, in a couple of months' time, your next release is coming out, which is a fourth Doctor adaption. Yeah. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a lost story of the Doomsday Contract. It was, contract. It was originally written by John Lloyd March, which I must admit, I don't really know. I know he's done. A, he's still writing, I believe. So he's still around. It, it, on, on this side of the globe, John Lloyd is a legend of um, of British comedy. He's currently producing QI. Uh, he produced not the Nine O'clock News. He worked with Douglas Adams on Hitchhikers. Uh, you know, he he uh, you know, he said he produced not the Nine O'clock News and um, and Blackadder. So he is the powerhouse of so much comedy. Pretty much, I, I, I joked, he did, uh, he's done about half of all quality British comedy since 1978. It's not too far from an exaggeration. Uh, he is a legend and he, yes, he is still very active. <laughs> he's still got his own teeth, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, this is, so this is a script he wrote for the fourth Doctor and Romana, is that right? And, but he, he so was he, was he approached to re- rework on it or? He was just too busy. How did, how did you end up adapting a story from someone else? I say it's a bit of a long story and um, I'm quite vague on the details, but at some point in this story, Nicola was asked to, to 
contact John Lloyd because John Lloyd produced Blackadder and Nicola was in Blackadder. She was cast in Blackadder's Christmas Carol. And she didn't want to do that because she just felt odd asking a favour after so many years. And I said, well, I, I'm, I'm a radio comedy guy and John's a radio comedy guy. And he hopefully knows me because I certainly know him. So I, and I, so I sent him an email saying, hey, uh, I'm this person uh, and you remember the Doomsday contract. They want to adapt it. And, and John was so gracious. He knew exactly who I was. And he said, that sounds like a delightful thing. I took him through the options. And uh, he he was very much into doing it and he looked at it and he said, I really can't, I can't, I don't know where to start. <laughs> it's that decision process as well. You know, he's provided with so much information from these two drafts. He doesn't even know how, you know, how to start willowing down, making those decisions. He said, would you, can you do it instead of me? And that's basically how it happened. Uh, I took over from John and took over his two drafts and, um, and adapted his script. So how much was there, was actually a whole script written or was it just more ideas? Uh, I misspoke. There are two very detailed drafts, storyline drafts. I said one is absolutely bonkers and the second one is slightly less bonkers. They've been through two, two storyline drafts uh, with Douglas. Douglas's handwritten notes are in all over the, the first draft. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, little suggestions like making one of the, uh, parties in this story to be a, have a green angle, you know, a conservation angle, which uh, John duly did in his second draft. So there's lots of suggestions, and you know, there's really you know full-blooded discussion on on the page about where this is going. And then I think John started on not the nine o'clock news and left left it in the drawer because he suddenly committed to producing a piece of comedy history. Um, so that's how it stopped. And I think Graham Williams was up for giving it to another writer to try and develop, I think, Alan Pryor. But nothing, he didn't, I don't think he wrote anything. But uh, I mean, I'm quite staggered because it is a completely bonkers idea how much they were willing to go with it. And it's a great idea, but it is so hitchhikers in its style and it's so oddball, which is brilliant. But I, I still can't see it snugly fitting between Nightmare of Eden and Horns of Nymon. It's so bonkers. Um, I reckon there'll be a very long process to whittle it down to something that you could see in, in studio TC8 for eight quid. It'll be a very long process to whittle it down and make it less ambitious and less ambitious in every draft, make it less ambitious because it's so ambitious. But you look at Douglas Adams scripts at the same time, Pirate Planet or Sharda, um, and they're unbelievably ambitious too. You're right. I mean, Douglas was always an ambitious writer. You're probably right. You're probably right. It probably would fit quite nicely between Horns and Nyman and Sharda. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, and, and there's, there's, there's probably no other time in the entire production history it could have been done, except with Douglas mm -hmm. Adams as the script editor and, and Williams as the producer. No, no one else would have touched it. But you know, the fact that they got that far shows that you know, they were prepared to try bonkers ideas. I want to say Douglas and, 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 and John Lloyd were, were very much co-writers at that time. You know, they were sharing a flat. They were working on stuff together. John Lloyd co-wrote bits of Hitchhikers. He produced Hitchhikers. So the, 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 the style we say, I, you know, you can say the style is very Douglas Adams, but 
it could equally say that the style is very John Lloyd because uh, the style comes out of the relationship between the two men. I'm not taking any away from Douglas at all. You can, but you can't really see where an idea starts and an idea finishes in certain ways. I mean, Douglas is a genius, but John Lloyd have that house style too. And uh, it doesn't belong to Douglas. Uh, and they were very much of the same mind when they were putting stuff together. This was based on, this proposal was very based on a, a novel that, that John Lloyd was writing called Gygax. I've not seen any of the drafts of it, but you know, it's his style too. Um, as you can see from the bits he wrote, um, I think episodes five and six of the first series of Hitchhikers. Chunks of that were John Lloyd, even though I think probably for copyright reasons, uh, Douglas took them out and replaced them with the disaster area stuff uh, for the TV series. Uh, I don't know, maybe just Douglas wanted to, to, to put more of his stamp on, on the series when it came to telly and, and rework that to his satisfaction. But yeah, I mean, say John Lloyd wrote a lot of, you know, a bit of Hitchhikers. You know, they were of the same mind in a lot of ways. You can see that in their book, The Meaning of Lift, they have that same kooky uh, left field attitude towards writing. Intelligent, but, you know, in the Python mold as well, very much in the Monty Python style. It does come out of that very much, that intelligent, literate, college educated, they used to call it university under, undergrad humour that comes out of Python. And uh, John had it and Douglas had it. I think it's a mistake to just say it's Douglas Adams because, yeah, he was the most... It's like being the most important writer in a movement, you know? Like Byron was the most important romantic, but let's not forget Keats and all the others uh, writing in, in, a, in, in that genre. Yeah, Douglas was the most important writing, uh, humorous, science fiction-style stuff, uh, intelligent undergraduate humour, as they call it, but it's more graduate humour. Uh, but John was doing it too. And this is all John's work. Mm. Was, do you know whether this was this recorded before lockdown? On the cusp, the first... Uh, I was with uh, them just before. The Tom Baker sessions were done in Tunbridge Wells before lockdown. And you were I there? Believe I was there for one day, yeah, and I was busy the second day, but I, I, I was very happy to go in for the first day. Uh, Lala's bits were done on the other side of the world, and I think that might have been after lockdown. I can't say for I think they were. I think there was a little documentary Big Finish did about it, about having to sort it out uh, post-lockdown, people in, people in their little polystyrene rooms doing their lines into the cellar. Yeah, so um, two-thirds of it was... Was, was recorded before lockdown and one third after, I think. What's it like as a writer going and watching your words being performed? <laughs> it was an interesting experience to see how a writer works. Uh, sorry, sorry, how a performer works, because every performer works in a slightly different way. I think I, I went in well insured because it's a humorous story. It's done in the style broadly in the style, in the milieu of a writer, Douglas Adams, that Tom admired. And I gave him a lot of good lines. I think Tom is a very, can get very bored with, with, with lines. He, he likes to make everything better. So if you give him a functional line, like, you know, uh, shut that door or, you know, 
we've got to stop them. He'll want to do something more interesting. It's a bit like Pat Troughton, who's always improvising around the lines and trying to make them more interesting, which can get a bit nerve wracking in the studio. But luckily for me, luckily for this type of story, almost every line he had, he seemed to be enjoying. So um, I was quite fortunate. But it's it's nice to, to see any actor work on, on your scripts. I mean, I, I love to hear I love to hear the intonations of Colin when I'm writing a six doctor strip script because I know that he might he'll approach it in this way. So I'm writing this line and I can hear it so easily in his head. And like with Nicola, I can hear the line in the head, and it's so nice to hear them do it and maybe do something a little unexpected. But most of the time, it's it's a very rewarding process. It's like writing for Dead Ringers for twenty years when you're writing a sketch and you know how the actors are going to approach it with their impressions and do it. You know they're going to do it really well and you're giving them stuff that they're going to enjoy doing. And that's a very satisfying part of, um, of working, of writing, that you're giving them what they like and they want and they will do the best of their abilities. As to, you know, they'll do it to the best of their abilities. And Tom was great in the studio. He was good. He had that bonkers element to him, but it's a bonkersness out of wanting it, wanting every line to be as good as it possibly can and making lots and lots of suggestions. Some of them were bonkers, but some of them were really good suggestions. And that's really good. That's really good. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I think anything that Tom does is usually magic. It'll be fun. Well, I was very pleased with the script. I'm very pleased with... with you know, it's it's an interesting process to boil down such a mad, expansive, creative work like the Doomsday Contract now to four 25-minute episodes. And as I'm very pleased with what I've done. You should be pleased as a writer with what you've done because you spend so much time on it, on writing. As an actor, you can go in and finish a job in an hour, but a writer, that never really happens. Uh, so you should be happy with your work and you should listen to it and enjoy it because that's your work and you spend a lot of time doing it to the best of your abilities. I can't be, I can't be, I don't have any time for writers to go, oh, I just write it and then I finish it. I can't bear to read what I've done. Why? Why, what's, why are you a writer then? You should really enjoy what you do. I agree. You should relish re-listening until you get bored of re-listening to it. Of, write, of performers doing your lines and doing your lines that you think you've written really well, really well. You should enjoy it. If so it's rubbish, now? don't. God. What's, what's, your, what's, what's your aim now? What's your dream? What are you wanting to do in the next little while? Um, carry on working. Um, I've got a... a, a you know, one can't be too specific, but I have a couple of big finishes sort of noodling around in the works. Um, can't say anything more than that. Things, things are always happening on the big finish front. Carrying on with, um, with Private Eye at the moment. I have a few, a few, few projects that I'm interested in doing. My second novel is, is carrying on. Hopefully I'm gonna use lockdown to get a few things finished. <laughs> Getting things finished is, is the hardest thing for a writer to do. And uh, I'm normally very good at that, even if it takes a decade. I mean, I started the first Mervyn Stone 
really yonks before it came out, a long time. I didn't have a publisher or anything. It took such a long time. And then I, then Big Finish said yes, and it all happened in the space of six months. But at times when writing the first moment, so I didn't know if it was ever gonna get finished, but I knew I would finish it. And once you just decide that as a writer, then that's the most important thing. You've got to have that mindset that this thing that I'm writing is going to be finished. Because it happens so often, you don't finish anything because you think, oh, it could be better, it could be worse. I'll, I'll just have another look at it in a month and I'll have another look at it in six months and I'll have another look at it in a year and nothing happens. Yeah. Peter Cook used to say, when someone said, someone used to, yeah, they used to come up to a party, uh, Peter Cook at a party and say, I'm writing a novel. And Peter Cook used to say, oh yes, neither am I. <laughs> and that, that's writing really. Yeah, you know, are you really writing it? Are you really, really writing it? No, you're not. <laughs> Listen, thank you so much for your time, Dave. It's been a joy talking to you. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it too. Thank you for listening to The Sirens of Audio, episode 44, an interview with Nev Fountain with Philip Edney and Dwayne Bunny. Theme music by Husky by the Geek. Find him on YouTube. His video version of the theme is tickety-boo. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcatcher. Subscribe to The Sirens of Audio on YouTube. We'll love you forever and ever for that. Write to us at sirensofaudio at gmail.com. Check our webpage at sirensofaudio.com. Our Twitter handle is at Audiosirens. Find us on Facebook by typing the Sirens of Audio into the search bar. And if you want to find out what a hunchback ninth doctor and a grumpy middle-aged Perry sound like, keep listening to audio drama because audio drama rocks!